Today on Teaching in Higher Ed, Episode 38, Steve Wheeler joins me to share about learning with ease. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so pleased to welcome Steve Wheeler to the show today. He's an associate professor of learning technology in the Plymouth Institute of Education at Plymouth University. He serves on the editorial board of dozens of international journals and is the author of four books, one of which we're going to be focusing on in today's episode, Learning with Ease. And his research interests include teaching technology, cybercultures, creativity, and social media. And Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, hello from Plymouth, where it's been really sunny and warm here today, funnily enough, in the middle of winter. But that's <laughs> the southwest coast of England for you. That's a nice surprise for you, I bet. Well, thanks for being well, on the show. Well, I'm looking at the weather reports, and it says that over on your side of the pond, uh, up in the northeast at least, where I was in the summer, in Washington, D.C., and New York, and Philly, and all those places, it's freezing over there. So uh, we've got the best of it over here, I think. Yes, well, a, a shout-out to our folks who are freezing. I'm in Southern California, nice and warm. I think it is uh-huh. 75 or 80 degrees outside today. <laughs> we live well, in paradise. I, I San Diego, that's one of my favorite places in the world. If you're near there, then that's a great place to be. That's where I grew up, and we're just about an hour north of there, yeah. Well, tell me a little bit first about why did you decide to write this book and how did the title come about? Well, the, the title and the book and the, the blog are all wrapped up together. As, as people will probably know if they've read the blog, uh, I originally started writing the blog back in um, probably about 2007. Um, so what, that's seven or eight years now it's been, it's been there. And I originally thought around, thought about names to, to, to call it, thought of something pithy, and I came up with learning with ease, because it's a play on words, but it's also saying exactly what it does on the job, you know, of the can, really. It, it's, uh, it's about learning using um, digital technologies. And uh, the book actually came from the blog, uh, so anybody who's read the blog will probably um, maybe recognize some of the, the chapters. Uh, what, what I've done is I've taken uh, prominent blog posts, ones that have been quite popular, and what I've done is I've, I've written new narrative around it and extended it and um, enlarged it, if you like, so that um, there are now 14 chapters in the book dealing with um, various aspects of learning with technology. And um, I, the other thing that I've done, which I think is fairly unique, is to try and incorporate um, comments from people who, who I've been interacting with on Twitter and on the blog into the uh, narrative as well. So it, in that sense, I suppose it's fairly unique. Did you also have the intent on the word ease itself, E-A-S-E, in, in terms of maybe inspiring us that we can do this too, or is that just my projecting myself on, onto you? Well, well, you see, not all learning is easy, nor should it be. I think mm. some learning should be a struggle. And I think um, I was at a conference speaking in, in uh, I think it was somewhere like Spain last year, and someone said to me, should all learning be fun? And I said, well, not, not all learning should be fun. I think some learning, a lot of learning should be fun, especially for kids, but... I think some learning should also be difficult. It should be a struggle because, you know, when we struggle for things, we value them more. 
And um, for people to value learning, I think sometimes there has to be some kind of storm and drang, as the Germans say, you know, a bit of a bit of angst, you know, uh, mm-hmm. as well sometimes. So you work your way through it, and you value the learning more. So, so yeah, learning with ease, but also learning um, sometimes with a struggle too. Uh, I think I was projecting myself then in that case because I mm-hmm. we talked a lot about on the show previously about the idea of not to shy away from learning being a struggle and that that actually is such a good sign. And yet I teach so much now. I'm, I'm, my primary discipline is business and management, but I, I've a couple of times a year I teach for a doctoral program over here yeah. with educators. And I, I'm noticing so much that with some of them, they just decide going into the classical classes, technology and leadership. They decide in advance, this is not for me. There's, there's such obstinance against it. So I think I'm projecting where I think if we go in with the mindset that these tools are not helpful, they're too hard, I can't do this. It's back to the research that's been done on mindset. I, 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 so I guess, <laughs> I guess I was projecting, but I can certainly see the importance of, of going through the struggle. And that's what's been rewarding too, is as I've done it more, I go, okay, they're going to struggle, they might even get angry with you. And at the end of it, they're going to be thanking you, or even if they don't, that that might not be the well, end of their learning journey. I remember when I, when I first got into um, education, I, I used to train um, teachers in the post-16 sector, which we would call post-compulsory education over here in the UK. And uh, <clears throat> I remember uh, I'd only been teaching for about three years since I qualified, and, and uh, I was quite young at the time, and there were a lot of, and most of the students were older than me because they were all coming in as seasoned educators and, and, and professionals wanting to, to gain a qualification. In those days, you could walk in to a college and, and, and uh, teach without without a teaching qualification. They have a degree, maybe, but the teaching qualification. And I, I remember practicing my particular style of progressive you know, education, which was very Socratic, very kind of asking questions rather than giving answers. And there was one um, Scots guy in, the, um, in, in, in my group, a, a, a rough kind of Scots guy, and he was quite a rough-looking guy, and he was, he was an engineer. And um, he got really angry with me in the first session and said, and said you know, uh, you're supposed to be telling us the answers and, mm-hmm. and we're supposed to be asking you the questions. You're our lecturer, you're our tutor, and you're supposed to be telling us, you know. And that's a really bad Scottish accent, but, uh, <laughs> but that's what he was saying. And, and, uh, and I said to him, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to um, keep asking you questions and get you thinking hard and get you struggling. He said, but that's not what we're here to do. We're here to learn from you. And, and, and he got really annoyed with me. And every week he would confront me with the same kind of um, uh, kind of complaint and every week I'd say to him go away and study more and come back and, and answer the questions that I'm asking you and do you know at the end of his of the 10 weeks of that module he came and shook my hand and said to me Steve I'd like to thank you very much for, for turning my mind around he said mm-hmm. and, and giving me a new perspective on teaching so I'm going to go away now and teach my engineering students the same way I'm going to ask them questions from now on and not give them answers to make them struggle <laughs> and so I thought, well, result, you know? <laughs> Wonderful. Speaking of these progressions, one of the things you describe in your blog and in the book is this progression between web 1.0, the right web, two, then we go into 2.0, the read-write web. Talk to us about e-learning 3.0 and how we've, what we've progressed from. Well, uh, those of you who are familiar with um, 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it came from the ideas of, of Tim O'Reilly, Tim O'Reilly originally, uh, O'Reilly Media. And um, what Tim was trying to do there was show not that there are, in fact, compartments into which 1.0 or 2.0 fit, 
but really to show kind of a more like a progression or evolution of the web into where it is now. And Web 1.0, if there was such a thing, would have been what we call the sticky web, which is a web which you couldn't do much with. It was really controlled by the webmasters, and they would push content to you, and you had to accept what was there, and really you couldn't change much, and you couldn't participate much either. But then um, with the advent of social media, with things like blogs and wikis and and uh, social networks and, and, and the like, um, what happened was suddenly the web became very participatory and you could actually create your own content and share it to large audiences. And that's really why it became known as the read-write web, or web 2.0, as Tim O'Reilly called it. Web 3.0, <clears throat> I suppose, is essentially um, the, the, the read-write web, but with machine intelligence combined into it. So... In effect, um, I mean, you can go onto Amazon, for instance, and see the examples, the early examples of this kind of semantic web, as we call it, whereby it predicts what you want by examining your previous behavior. It takes the big data, either of you or, or a community of views, and what it does is it, um, it predicts what you need. And so on Amazon, if you buy a book, it will say, oh, did you know that 23 people who bought this book also bought these? And you go, oh, I didn't realize those existed. And suddenly you're interested in content that you didn't know was there. And so what it's done is, is it's taken your previous behavior and purchasing um, uh, and so on. And it, it's predicted what you might want next uh, based on uh, what, it, you know, what, what it's seen other people buy who've also bought the same things and what you've also bought previously. And that really, if you start putting that into the context of learning, you know, whether it's learning management systems or the flipped classroom or you know, MOOCs or, or any type of digital delivery, you can see how powerful that might become because that would allow you to start creating your own personal pathways through large quantities of content uh, so you can get to the point where you need to quicker and maybe in some cases easier. Explain the theory of digital natives and what are your thoughts on the paradigm? Digital natives and immigrants. This is a theory by one of your countrymen, a guy called Mark Prensky, who I, I know I've spoken to him a few times. And Mark um, came up with this idea probably around 2000, 2001, and he published it in a, a, a journal called The Horizon, I believe. And um, what he was trying to say there was that digital natives are the younger generation who are uh, so immersed in the world of technology that they take to it like ducks to water. They're naturally um, adept, according to him, at using technology. So therefore, they are digital natives. The digital immigrants like me and like people my age weren't born in the age of technology. It crept up upon us in the 80s and 90s, and, and um, then we had to learn it very quickly. And of course, we can speak technology now, but we speak it with a bit of an accent <laughs> because we've had to learn it hard, the hard way. And uh, so what he's done, really, he's shown a generational divide there, a bit like, I suppose, Tapscott and Williams with their, you know, net generation, or Diana Oblinger with her, you know, screen ages and all these kind of terms that we use um, to try and differentiate between what younger people and older people do. I have to say that, for me, that's a load of rubbish. Um, and for a lot of other people out there, a lot of theorists out there who are examining what is actually going on in, in the schools and in the universities. Um, older people and younger people both tend to use technology in very much the same way. They use it to try and do things as tools to, to try and accomplish tasks or whatever. And they will mix and they will select. It's not about age, it's about context. 
And I, I always point people at this point to another theory, a theory by a couple of colleagues of mine in the UK, um, David White and Alison LeCornu, who were at Oxford University when they wrote this, and they talk about residents and visitors instead. Now, this is a better theory for, for a number of reasons, but let me just give you one reason why I think this is better. Um, the residents are those who are people of any age group who habituate into the use of a particular set of tools or technologies. They become very familiar with the tools, and therefore they become resident within those tools and they can use them for any purpose. The visitors are those who may be the same people who use other sets of tools casually, and they'll use them in ways that only when they need them occasionally. And of course, they're not as familiar with those tools as the ones that they are resident within, and therefore they struggle with them. And that, for me, is a much better contextually laden uh, explanation than the digital natives and immigrants theory. My first job out of college was teaching computer classes, and that's how I really started with my passion for technology. And I used to actually teach six different levels of Microsoft Excel. And they talk about people only using 2% of features in a robust word processor or an application such as a spreadsheet. And I do, I have such mixed feelings about this because as you say, it does seem like a bit of rubbish to me. We've actually in the past had colleagues, this is many years ago, but that suggested, oh, we should not teach a class on computer applications for our, our majors because they, they all know this stuff already. And I wish I would have yeah. had your expression of a load of rubbish because that was more polite than what I was thinking at the time. That, that's the problem with the theory. Firstly, it's got no empirical evidence to support it. It's all anecdotal. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds nice. It sounds like it's intuitive. But when you get down to it, uh, people uh, use technology because they want to, not, not because they have to. Um, you know, Some people obviously get forced into using it in their job, but then they get trained. And then, and then they use it. The, the, I suppose the problem with it is that when, when you get into a school, a, a school staff room where, where all the, the faculty where all the teachers are in there talking, you will actually hear the digital natives um, theme or theory emerge almost like an excuse. Well, I'm not going to go in and um, use the computers with these kids because they all know it already, and I'll be made to look like an idiot because I don't know it. Um, you know, that is just an excuse, I think, um, to, to, to disengage from using technology. Um, the kids will use technology anyway, but um, I think it's still down to teachers to scaffold their use of it into you know, rich and, and true pedagogical applications. In other words, children know how to use technology to play games. They probably know how to use it to um, connect with each other and, you know, and, and uh, use, it, use it as a social network. But when it comes to hard learning and serious um, pedagogy, they've got no clue, and this is where teachers come in. Teachers are not only content experts, they should also be pedagogy experts as well and show students how to use technology in the appropriate ways. And that also includes, I suppose, avoiding um, all the really um, dangerous and difficult things that kids might get into if they don't know what those dangers are. When Kathy Davidson was on the show, she and I spoke about a tool that helps assess for digital literacy that Mozilla has put out. Are there any other tools that you find helpful frameworks or models for assessing whether it's the teacher or the students' uh, levels of digital literacy? Do you know, I, I, I admire Kathy's work, um, you know, and, and, I, and you know, I correspond with her a lot, actually. Um, but I'm not sure whether um, tools like that are any use because mm-hmm. every individual's context is unique. And, um, I, you know, I... I these tools tend to end up measuring people against each other. 
which I don't think is what we're in the game to do. I think what we're in the game to do is to learn as well as we can each of us and also to teach as well as we can. And, um, you know, for me, you know, tools that measure your level of digital literacy um, don't have that much meaning or value. Um, so for me, I know what I need to do with the tools that I've got available to me, and so do my students. And if they don't, then I will scaffold them into that. And the same goes for my colleagues. Um, I don't need to measure my level of digital literacy. I just need to know personally where the gaps are and then find out how to bridge those gaps, if you like. I'm hearing a theme from what you're saying, too, that that's part of the problem solving itself. So the whole context of your teaching is to engage them in problem solving and asking those important questions. And of course, technology is going to be a part of that problem solving, too. We learn best when we're curious. We become curious when we don't know the answer to something. And we don't know the answer to something when we get challenged, Mm -hmm. usually with a problem. Yeah. Uh, So so problem-based learning, challenge-based learning for me is probably the most powerful method that you can possibly use. How did you first get started on Twitter? And what are the what are most higher ed educators missing about the power of this social network? Um, well, I, I first got involved with Twitter when I when I saw it being used um, at a conference. When I saw it as a back channel, I thought I must find out what people are saying behind the um, behind the screen, if you like, behind the you know where the speakers are. And so I, I immediately created an account. It was the Steve Wheeler account, which very rarely gets used. It's got very, it's only got a thousand followers or so that one. So. Um, but the Steve Wheeler account is, is, was the first account that I, that I created. Um, and then I thought, let me try an experiment here. So I, I created the Timbuk Teeth account, which was a silly name, I know, but it's a name now that's stuck as a brand, I suppose. <laughs> and I created an avatar for it, um, you know, the, the astronaut from 2001, A Space Odyssey, um, the actor Kirdurai, who played Dave. And um, and I put shades on him and I colored him blue and that was my avatar. That was my kind of um, presence on Twitter. And I did that as kind of a social experiment to see who would follow it, uh, not knowing who was behind it. And, um, of course, after a while, it, it got lots of followers and, and, and then suddenly became uh, quite, quite a channel for communication. And, and uh, I now use it along with my older um, uh, avatar, the Steve Wheeler account, and three other accounts, which I won't talk about because people don't know who's behind them. Um, mm. <laughs> and uh, all of these accounts, I suppose, I'm using as a as a kind of a psychological experiment to see how, how people communicate with each other and how we connect in this new um, learning ecology that we would call the Twitterverse, I suppose. And, and Twitter, for me, is probably the most powerful um, tool for communicating I've ever used. And I've used lots of different tools over the years. I've been in the business nearly 40 years now, um, and I remember um, the age before the internet. I remember the age before personal computers and mobile phones. I remember when we first put the satellites up and started using them all those years ago, and I remember using um, closed-circuit television studios, and all of that kind of stuff um, has been kind of leading up to this point where we're now able to connect with each other instantly around the world and share content and repurpose content and discuss and discover together. For me, this is probably the most exciting period in my hist- in the history of my, my career ever. I can't think of a time that's more exciting than this. It's challenging. It's exhilarating. It's um, it, it's got so many facets to it that that uh, kind of um, excite me and and hopefully make me a better educator as a result of that because I'm learning from people all the time. 
So that's why that's why I got into Twitter. And what are we what what are some common themes that you see people missing about it? Where they might even join it because they come hear you speak or read your book and they say, "Okay, I'm going to give this thing a try. I believe him." And and then they don't have that experience. What are they missing? Um, what they're missing is persistence. They lack persistence. Um, I, I, I will say this: anybody who gets onto Twitter, you need to give it time. You need to give it time. You need to start following people and getting them to follow you back. Because if you don't get a critical mass, you are going to miss the point of Twitter. Twitter is not about the content. Twitter is about the conversation. And you can't have conversations with people if you don't follow them or if they don't follow you. Mm. So you really need to connect with people. It's all about that keyword, uh, connect word, so that you can converse and, and um you know, have that kind of exchange of ideas. That is the most powerful aspect of Twitter. Always has been, always will be. And, you know, people who don't persist, people who do it for a while and then drop out, and there are hundreds or thousands of them, in fact, that, you know, people that I know in my own workplace who have tried it and then said, oh, it doesn't work for me. Um, the reason it doesn't work, my dear, is because you haven't persisted. <laughs> you need to give it time and, and build up a kind of repertoire of connections, and then you'll start to see the power of that. Why should professors blog, and who are a few examples of bloggers that you read and follow who are living out those reasons? Um, why should professors blog? Uh, because if they don't, how else are they going to express themselves? The, the way that professors usually express themselves and their ideas is through closed academic journals, peer-reviewed journals. And this is the kind of, the, the kind of academic... Um, capital, if you like, that most universities currently subscribe to. That's going to change because more and more of us are now blogging as a means of expression. I'll give you an example of why I know that blogging is much more effective at spreading your message than a closed academic journal. I, um, I, I wrote um, an article um, back about 2006 or 2005, I think it was, and it wasn't published for, for, for nearly three years because it went through a whole process of peer review. They couldn't find enough peer reviews. They sent it back to me. I revised the content, sent it back to them again. And then there was a huge backlog before the paper copy came out because um, at the time there were loads of people sending in articles. And so I had to wait nearly three years for my article to be published. Um, at the same time as that was published, I wrote another article, sent it into an open access journal, which you could call a blog if you like, but this was peer-reviewed also. This was peer-reviewed by five people instead of two, and the, the five reviewers were open reviewers. They could, they, I knew their name, they knew my name. Not only did they uh, publish my article within six weeks of me submitting it after the revisions, they also published their review comments, and they published my revised copy as well as my initial copy. So in fact, it was an open audit process. Um, so this is the kind of thing you can do on blogs as well, but open access journals and blogs are the way forward for disseminating content. Uh, and I'll give you one final comparison. The, the article that I published in the closed paper review journal, I don't know how many people have read it, but I do know that it's had 36 academic citations since 2007. The, the open access journal article that I wrote, I know that it's had something like 550,000 views since it was published, and it's had almost a 1,000 academic citations. There really mm. is no comparison. And when you come to blogging, this is even more open because what you're doing there is you are entering into 
almost like a bear pit where, <laughs> where people are actually reading stuff and commenting on it. So you get a different type of peer review there. You get a peer review which, which is, could be much harsher, in fact, and often, often um, is, but it makes you think harder. It makes you reflect on your practice more deeply. It makes you more critically aware of all the, all the different conflicting opinions that are out there. It gets you more deeply engaged in the discourse of your field and ultimately it allows you a huge audience, an instant audience. Um, I can put out a blog post and, and get a couple of thousand, three thousand views in a day on it. I don't know how I could possibly do that with publishing in journals. So um, that's why I think uh, professors should publish their ideas in blogs and also, as I say, open access journals. Those, I think, are the two main uh, channels for the future. And they will... Um, emerge in more popularity as, as the years go by, as the closed journal starts to um, fade into the background and become irrelevant. That's my personal opinion on that. You asked me for favorite blog um, mm -hmm. blogs that I would read. Well, um, I, I read a number of, of blogs on both sides of the Atlantic. And, and um, let, let me tell you, um, Jim Groom, um, his work is fabulous. Um, also, I, I, I read the work of George Siemens. I read Stephen Down's work. I read the work of Stephen Anderson. Uh, he's got a blog called uh, Web 2.0 Classroom, and his work is absolutely fabulous. You know, Shelley Terrell's a, a good friend of mine. I read her work a lot. Uh, on my side of the channel, uh, or the, the, my side of the, uh, the pond, there are people like, um, I'm thinking of um, Martin Weller and uh, David Hopkins, who's got a blog, wonderful blog called um, uh, Don't Waste Your Time, which is a, an EdTech blog. Um, uh, and, and various other people. Uh, over in, on your side again, there's Amy Burval, who's in, actually in Hawaii. Now, Amy Burval um, has got the, um, the History Teachers channel on YouTube, and that is an absolute hoot to watch, honestly. But it gets its message across in, in historical format using contemporary tunes. Um, uh, there, there's so many people out there now. Um, Audrey Waters is another one that I admire. Um, there are so many. Alan Levine, Cogdog on Twitter. Uh, I'll give them all a name check because they're all such great people. Um, Helen um, Keegan on this side of the Atlantic. I, I could I could go on and on. There there are literally dozens of people that that I that I follow and and read the content from. So there are, there are, there is a kind of a, <laughs> a a huge amount of blog posts out there coming out all the time that, that that are really really worth reading and you'll learn something from each of them. Believe me. I knew it wasn't a fair question, but I, I couldn't resist because you just named a number of names that I well, am aware of, but also... <laughs> just one, shouldn't you? And then, I, then you just limited me. Oh, I, I would have still gone about 13 there. <laughs> oh, it's, I mean, it's brilliant. It's fun to see some that I recognize and then some that are totally new. So it's, it, I'm glad that I asked. And speaking of Audrey Waters, as we look to close, or at least transition into the recommendations piece, she was on the show. And one of the things that has really stuck with me was this idea of privacy with regard to big data. And, and I, I won't do justice to her words, but if anyone hasn't listened, I'd suggest go back to teachinginhighered.com slash 15, Ugh, 15 or 18. I shouldn't do this off the cuff. <laughs> At any rate, she talked about just this idea that 
Even as young children, it used to look like we'd have our cardboard box and the cardboard box would have our report cards and and mementos such as that. But that today with big data and especially with the big publishing testing companies, our every click of the mouse is being tracked. And you mentioned Amazon, of course. I mean, wonderful that we can be marketed to so well, but a little scary thinking about young children and even us as adults not being afforded as much the opportunities to fail and, and and thinking about all of that being tracked. Do you have any thoughts or about that aspect of it? Sort of the fear side of you, you spoke so eloquently about the opportunity, but I wondered your thoughts on the, the challenges. Well, you know, you know, as well as I do that the way that the MOOCs, the big, the, the axe MOOCs are actually making their money is by selling data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I suppose that's their prerogative and people have to have their eyes open when they go into these kind of things. When it comes to school, when it comes to compulsory education, I think it's a different matter. But, um, I mean, I could answer very tritely and say there's no such thing as privacy anymore. And to a certain extent, the death of privacy has happened because, you know, um, we are all surveilled now. We are all monitored. Um, People know where we are by just following the GPS positioning on our our mobile phones, our our cell phones. Um, You know, it's very difficult to be a private citizen these days. I think you'd have to um, have no electronic devices or tools on you at all anywhere to be kind of unknown in, in, in the, the, the world. Um, uh, it, it, it's a difficult question to answer because, I mean, there are issues of, of data protection and, and, and privacy, which, you know, are still, I think, being formulated. Uh, I think the law is running to catch up with the rapid advance of technology and how it's influencing our society. Um, so I, I think um, it's a difficult question to answer because school systems differ. Um, social contexts differ, um, cultural norms differ across the world, uh, and what is privacy for one person is not privacy for another person. So, you know, I, I'm going to demur at that point and say that that's all I can say on that issue. <laughs> it, it's certainly a complex one. Before we go to recommendations, what have I not asked you that I should have? Um, you could ask me anything you like. What's my favourite <laughs> football team? Or, um, <laughs> how many um, socks did I wear this week? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I was telling you before I hit record that I just finished reading your book, and there's so much there. I it was difficult to even pick out the questions that I did, so I thought I'd just leave a little room for you to share anything else you'd like to <laughs> before we go into recommendations. Um, do you know what what floats my boat at the moment? Do you use that expression in America. What yes. floats your boat? Yes. Yeah, what floats my boat at the moment is maker spaces. Have you heard of those? Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I I was I had my eye open uh, open eyes open last year. I, I knew they existed before, but I went to um, a school in New Zealand uh, in Auckland called Topaki School. Here's another guy to follow. A guy called Stephen Leth- Lethbridge, who's the principal of that school, Topaki School. Have a look at it. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most fabulous schools you'll ever get to if you get out there. Um, and um, it's what they call a primary plus school. So their children start at the age of five and they go through to the age of 13. So it's almost like a, a kind of a bit of a high school in there as well. And that's quite a time to have those kids. And you can walk into any classroom in that school and you'll see maker spaces in there. So in one corner, they'll be doing things like making uh, robots and, and, and uh, you know, problem solving how to get a robot over a barrier or through a you know pile of water, you know, a puddle of water or something, or they'll be, um, in another space, they'll be creating um, uh, kind of digital tools and technologies. Uh, I, I even saw um, uh, somebody using um, soft materials um, and conductive thread 
and LEDs, and they were creating pencil cases which lit up when you when you spoke to them. It lies on the dog lit up, you know, because of the LEDs inside it. And the kids are doing all this themselves, and some of them are no more than you know seven or eight years old. They're learning all of their subjects through problem solving, through making things. And of course, this goes back to the work of Seymour Packard, doesn't it? You know, the constructionist theories of the 60s. Um, so whether they're coding or whether you know programming computers or whether they're measuring a school and then recreating it on Minecraft or whether they're doing something else, what they're doing is they're learning the curriculum subjects, but they're doing it in a very fun way, a very engaging way, and they're doing it using challenge-based and problem-based learning. And that, to me, is the most heady, powerful mix of pedagogy that I've ever seen in my life anywhere in the world, and I do get around. So um, that's happening now in other schools, in other parts of the world, I'm noticing. Um, schools are buying into things like Arduino and uh, Makey Makey and... Um, Raspberry Pis and Banana Pis and various other little tools and technologies. And they're starting to see the power of making and mm. learning through it. So that's really what's exciting me at the moment. You're making me so glad I asked. And I will put links to every single thing I can find throughout the show, the, the entire show. I'll come back and hold you. <laughs> This is the point in the show where we transitions to recommendations, and I'm going to make a quick one first and then welcome you to make one or, or a few if you'd like. And mine is the last guest that we had on the show. His name is Doug McKee, and he's out of Yale. He teaches economics there and statistics. And he recommended some kids books and actually followed up with an email with a link to his blog where he blogs more on the personal level. And I'll link to that in the show notes because if you liked his kids book recommendations, you'll like his blog where he looks more at that type of thing. And I wanted to go back and recommend a, a book from my childhood, actually, that stayed with me all these years. And it's called Hope for the Flowers. And it on its basis is an allegory. It's a story about a caterpillar. And this is a quote from the description of the book, partly about life, partly about revolution and lots of hope for adults and others, including cat caterpillars who can read. And it's just a delightful book to help so many of the, the students I work with are 18 to 22, and they're convinced they have to have it all figured out. It causes great anxiety for them that they can't answer the question, what are they going to do when they graduate, which is really one of the worst questions I think you can ask young people today. And I just love because I won't give too much away. But the caterpillar just struggles to get the, the top of this giant pile of caterpillars they're all just reaching up into the clouds to try to get to the top and and make it as a caterpillar and so he joins in this big messy physically violent at times stack of it's a silo that's what it is of, of caterpillars and when he gets to the top his question is is this all there is and <laughs> so it's just a wonderful book that i think helps just kind of think a little bit about our careers and it's just a it's a great story so what is your recommendation for us today oh well um i could i've got so many recommendations i i'd be here until tomorrow this time <laughs> but i'll tell you one book that i think that people should read it comes from the same stable that my book's just been published in the crown house publishing which is a welsh company and it's a book that's curated not written but curated by rachel jones and it's called don't change the light bulbs and basically what Rachel has done is taken a whole bunch of British educators who are the most connected that she believes in the UK. And what she's done is she's taken the best of all their blog posts and put them together into a compendium of about 50 ideas for the classroom. 
And anything you want to teach, you'll find an idea in there just about for it. It's a, it's a real recipe book for all educators. Thanks for that recommendation. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And I just want to thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all of these ideas for how to make us be more effective and learning with ease. Great. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to go off and walk the dog now. <laughs> Thanks. That was episode 38 with Steve Wheeler, who has given me so much to think about and go and check out. My head feels like it's going to explode in the best way possible. Thanks again to Steve for joining me for this energizing and interesting and really made me curious kind of conversation. If you'd like to comment on today's episode, that's at teachinginhighered.com slash 38. If you'd like to give feedback on the podcast as a whole, that's at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. And as always, I welcome you to subscribe to the weekly update, which will give you a blog post once a week about teaching or productivity. And also in that email will include the show notes to episodes like the one you just listened to. And that's at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks for listening. And Steve, thank you again.